I'm Becky Quick of CNBC and your host of The Forum. I'll be guiding you through exclusive conversations among some of the world's global leaders, conversations previously held behind the club's doors. But today, we invite you in. The Economic Club of New York serves as the premier forum for nonpartisan discussion dedicated to connecting the world's brightest minds with preeminent public and private sector leaders. A nonprofit 501c3, the club is a 115-year-old platform for the conversations that help shape the future of our world. The Economic Club of New York, brightest minds, critical conversations, catalyst for innovation. Today, we ask the question, what is it going to take to close the wealth gap in the United States? We hear answers from four global leaders who shared their perspectives in various addresses to the club. As part of our diversity, equity, and inclusion series, we're proud to make these conversations more accessible to all. Let's kick things off by hearing from Emmy Award-winning historian Henry Louis Gates in an excerpt from a conversation with economist Glenn Hubbard on the Economic Club stage. Well, um, two ways. One in terms of vetting educational programs, and the other in terms of um, understanding what a comprehensive fix would be. Okay, let me take the, the latter one. No one knows what it would take for the curve of class within the black community to equal the curve of class in the white community. You know, I'm, what am I saying? The percentage of black people in the middle class would be the same as the percentage of white people in the middle class. The percentage of black people in the upper class would be the same as for white people. And the percentage of black people, the lower end of the spectrum would be the same. What would it actually cost to affect that end? I would like to see the business community commission an ideologically neutral think tank to do a study to say, okay, this is what it would take. And Glenn, you know, one night you and I were talking and you did a back of the envelope calculation and we were talking about $10 trillion, you know, just in, you know, we were just riffing. But I would really like to know with sophisticated economists on the left and on the right saying, all right, we're not going to blame anybody. We're going to say um, this was this uh, outcome was produced, unfortunately, through all kind of mistakes and, you know, uh, bad decisions. But this is what going forward it would take to cure the problems of systemic racism as manifested themselves economically. What would it cost? Across the many leaders that have taken part in answering this question, access emerges as a theme. Access to capital, access to financial services, access to financial literacy and education. We're going to hear from experts on each, starting with Nicole Elam. She's the president and CEO of the National Bankers Association. Now, why does that matter? It matters because over the last two years, everybody has been talking about closing the racial wealth gap. And it is really hard to close the racial wealth gap without the financial institutions that have been supporting those community communities since you know they were first created. These are institutions that were born out of racism because black, brown, and immigrant communities could not go to mainstream financial institutions for their banking services. So to just step back and think about the wealth gap, oftentimes people don't think about what are the key drivers to wealth creation. Well, the three key drivers to wealth creation are having access to banking services. It's really hard to grow your wealth if you don't have access to banking services. Home ownership continues to be a key driver of wealth creation and owning a profitable small business. And so when you think about those three things, MDIs are at the center of all of those things for black and brown communities. Those are the ones that are oftentimes saying yes to lending when mainstream financial institutions are saying no. So a question that I typically get is, 
well, because these these institutions are over a century old, right? Because they were born out of racism, do they still matter today? And the answer is unfortunately yes, because data continues to show that black and brown people, even with the same um, financial record, right, with the same credit profile are still being denied at a rate that is two times that of their white counterparts. So these are institutions that are, again, providing mortgages and small business loans and communities that are oftentimes underserved by mainstream banking institutions. Speaking of the importance of MDIs, those are minority depository institutions, we heard from Michael Pugh, the president of the MDI Carver Federal Savings Bank, speaking out on the state of Black-owned banks today. Uh, When you look at where we were 10 years ago, the average assets for, uh, that were circulating within uh, Black-owned banks was approximately the same as it is today. So you're talking about roughly $5 billion in assets that are under management with approximately 21 banks, yet African-Americans contribute to about $1.1 trillion in terms of spending power in our economy. So there's certainly some work to do, uh, I think, there in terms of creating consciousness and awareness uh, for supporting uh, these institutions. But but again, they frankly have a, a struggle to survive as the regulatory environment and the cost of doing business has been a contributing factor to uh, uh, many of them closing. So we see a problem clearly emerging here. Minority communities are underserved by mainstream financial institutions. MDIs come in to serve this community, but they're under-supported and under-resourced. So what's the result? Millions of Americans without a traditional credit score or access to financial services. This is where we ask, what are the mainstream financial institutions, the ones with the most power, doing about all of this? Here's David Benson, the president and interim CEO of Fannie Mae. Uh, much of what we do is setting the credit standards that are that are in place in the market. Uh, there are populations within um, our society that um, either don't have a sufficient credit history to really be able to qualify for, for a mortgage. Um, we call, you know, some of these folks we call credit invisible when they literally don't have enough of enough data to be able to have a credit score. But yet there's these, these folks or many of these folks have data that would indicate that they're credit worthy of uh, potential borrowers. And so what we've done is we've taken a look at some of the kinds of data that aren't currently uh, exposed into the credit scoring models, Uh, rental payments. You mentioned rental payments as as an example. So what we've started to do is to capture that data, however we can get it, either through uh, bank statements, other, other kinds of documentation that people can provide, and we've begun to use our own scoring of, the, of that data to be able to qualify them uh, you know, for, for lending. Uh, we think that whether rental payments, uh, also cash flow underwriting is a term that we use to talk about the analysis of people's uh, financial uh, um, statements that come through month by month through their bank statements and looking at the income. There's now a gig economy, which is pretty significant some of the traditional ways that people are, are measured in terms of their incomes, it's really hard to get that data to qualify them, but we're starting to do more you know, with that. And we, we intend to take in that information into our own automated underwriting systems to be able to look to qualify people. I do just want to highlight that 
uh, our intent isn't really to reduce the, the credit standards that we, that we apply against people. What we're trying to do is to set the standards that we, that we believe are sustainable and safe uh, and to fill that credit box, so to speak. We're looking for those qualified borrowers who may not be captured through the traditional mechanisms and being able to qualify them. We, we have found uh, uh, statistically so far about half of the people that we've been able to qualify based upon their rental payments have been minority borrowers. And so we're, we're really excited about the thought of being able to reach, reach folks who haven't necessarily had access to, to this market. David goes on to call out the stark differential in home ownership between communities. That's the third item in Elam's list of the three key drivers to wealth creation. Uh, you know, white population and, and the black population, it's about a 30-point spread, about approximately 70, 72% of white families uh, own a home. And it's only about 42% for, for black families. And that's, that's been a, a differential that has persisted for decades. Uh, and, uh, you know, there've been many attempts to be able to kind of both deal with, you know, understand and then deal with the root causes of, of that issue. Uh, but we really have not made any significant progress along those lines over the last, you know, at least 50 years. Uh, and so what, what we tried to do is take a diff, maybe a different approach than what's been taken before in terms of understanding that particular problem. And we started off by defining what we like to call a housing journey. As institutions like Fannie Mae take a closer look at the journey toward home ownership, it becomes clear that there's more at play than pure access to capital and services. Capital alone isn't going to solve the problem. Here's where we turn to financial literacy. What we found in our uh, research is that um, black uh, uh, black families often have not uh, the they do not have the resources or they did not know what they uh, needed to know to be able to access the system in a successful way. So we start off with programs around education. We have um, an education program that we call HomeView, which is available on our website. It's free and it literally helps to walk people through all of the steps that they would um, need to take in terms of having a successful um, interaction with the, with the housing finance system, with the whole mortgage process, and, and in having a, sustainable, a sustainably successful uh, 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 a situation in terms of the purchase of a home and, and, and in having that be a successful experience. So it starts there. Even as major institutions have begun work to improve access, rethink traditional models of service, and provide education, is this enough? Let's hear from Nicole Elam and then Michael Pugh regarding literacy as it relates to MDIs. Yeah, so here's the interesting thing about um, about financial literacy. It is now kind of a, a buzzword, but the interesting thing about particularly black, brown, and immigrant communities is that you can't just give them capital, right? You can't just give them a loan. You have to make sure that they are capital ready, mortgage ready. So I think what has always distinguished MDIs from maybe mainstream financial institutions is it takes so much of our personnel because we are doing a lot of that coaching, that financial literacy as we're providing them with whatever capital that they need. Some of the key things that I would say where uh, frankly really matters and there has to be ongoing effort. Financial education, as an example, we've educated more than 15,000 people over the past uh, few years um, in terms of uh, providing 
uh, money management skills and training that will help consumers think about their first time home purchase and will also help business owners think about how to effectively understand a balance sheet and income statement, how to put together a business plan that will allow your business to thrive and manage through uh, difficult times. The educational component is mission critical. I think all financial institutions have a responsibility to participate in that component because we know that if we get involved in helping small businesses and consumers develop those money management skills, uh, it will, from an ecosystem standpoint, ultimately help the economy and certainly local neighborhoods block by block. To summarize, financial literacy is a major focus of leaders coming at the problem from every direction, at major institutions like Fannie Mae, at the National Bank Association, and at smaller MDIs like Carver. Hearing again from Henry Louis Gates, who kicked off this episode, he reflects on how part of the literacy disparity ultimately comes back to equal access to education. I think that, you know, now we have local option, as it were, and when all school districts, uh, all school funding is local. And I mean, it varies uh, county to county. And I think it should be nationalized uh, or at least equalized by state so that you shouldn't be punished because you're living in a neighborhood with a low tax base, right? So the the amount of money spent per child per school is the same at Princeton High School um, or in all the high schools in Bedford-Stuy, you know, or... And Trenton High right down the street. Yeah, absolutely. And until we do that, you are being, it's double jeopardy. You know, you're in a a school district because you're poor and your kids are going to end up being poor because they're in a bad school district, going to bad schools. I even think we should pay more money per student for our worst schools. Teachers should get combat um, pay for to encourage them, entice them uh, to be there. Until we correct the problem of public school education, we are going to see the systemic um, manifestations of deep structural problems punishing our society and our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren for time immemorial. So there are many levels to this problem. There's one thing that has the ability to improve access to financial services, to foster financial literacy, support prosperity of MDIs, and improve the quality of our education system, and that is technology. So many solutions lie in technology if you have the resources as an institution to put it in place. This is true for schools and banks alike. Nicole Elam shares how technology impacts MDIs and banking and what the National Bankers Association is doing. Technology is something that is huge in the banking industry, and it it really exploded during the pandemic. You know, what we found was that banks that had technology were able to perform better, right? They were able to keep their virtual doors open, if you will, to continue to serve their customers. They were able to push out PPP loans, but technology is expensive, but it's underpinning everything that we do, not just the way that we live, work, and play, but the way that we bank. And so they've got to have technology to keep up. But because technology is expensive, Uh, they don't have the scale that they need. That's one of the biggest cost prohibitive reasons is it's so expensive. And if you're a small bank that's 
you know, 200, $300 million, technology is, is too much. So one of the things that we do as a trade association is we try to serve as a shared resource center, you know, really trying to collaborate and bring opportunities of scale to the table so that we can take advantage uh, of tech and talent on behalf of these banks. So we are brokering fintech partnerships so that our banks can do more online onboarding. They can uh, open more accounts, if you will, online. They can do more automated lending for mortgages and small business loans. They can do more of P2P, so the Zelle and, and all of those peer-to-peer -peer payments that they, they can't do on their own. So we're brokering and building those fintech partnerships. We're also negotiating special prices for these uh, MDIs. We're trying to have a centralized chief technology officer. So all of these things we're trying to centralize and do because individually they don't have the scale, but together we have the scale to get further faster. And so we are really trying to do as much of that as we possibly can, realizing that there are two things that I think are gonna threaten the longevity of MDIs. One, technology, because banking now is all about technology, but two, their ability to capture the next generation, right? I, we, I talked a little bit about the history of MDIs, that they were born out of racism. So my parents, my grandparents, my, my, my ancestors, they all used it, but I may not know about an MDI, and I'm really not going to know about it if, they're, if they don't have technology. I can't get on right. an app. I can't do all these types of things. So if they don't get technology together, it's going to really impact their survivability. The moderator of Nicole Elam's address to the club then poses the question, can technology reduce the racial wealth gap? She responds. Absolutely. I think technology does two primary things. One, it improves um, the access to financial services and second, the affordability of financial services. So with technology, it increases access because you can reach people whether you have a brick or mortar there or not. You can reach people on their phones. So it allows you to reach more people. It also allows you to do more financial wellness training, right? People aren't wanting to come in and sit in a class and hear you talk about financial wellness, but if it's an app that's integrated into the way that I'm establishing a banking relationship or increasing or leveraging a banking relationship. So technology helps you do more of that. Um, technology also helps with the affordability, right? With technology, I can operate more efficiently. I can reduce my cost. I can reduce my risk. And so technology is, is very important to reducing the wealth gap because of these two things of it helping to drive access to and the affordability of financial services. There's optimism in knowing that real society-shifting solutions lie in technology, and technology is one thing we have never failed to constantly improve. To quote a historic address from our 1966 Economic Club archives, Indira Gandhi said this, In this complex and troubled world of today, the greatest promise for a better future lies in the growth in science and technology and in modern means of communication which have brought this world, yours and mine, so close together already. You've been listening to The Forum by the Economic Club of New York, a nonprofit 501c3 dedicated to connecting the world's brightest minds for critical nonpartisan conversations. Be sure to subscribe now to be alerted to future episodes. To learn more, visit econclubny.org. I'm your host, Becky Quick. Thanks for listening.